Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and a columnist for the New Daily. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are the Money, the Money Cafe. Cafe. <laughs> um, so, James, we're on the remote Zencaster again because you're in Sydney. What are you doing? I'm uh, I'm hosting a panel at the Morgan Stanley conference. They've got a, a conference for the next couple of days up in Sydney, and, and I'm doing a panel with Ian McFarlane, the former RBA governor, which is timely given uh, the, the rates decision this week, which is a um, bit of a shock for everyone. Um, it was actually, wasn't it? I mean, the... There was a, there was an argument going on as to whether it'd be two point two five or point four. Um, it turned out to be point five. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was surprised. I don't know what you thought, but I was surprised at the at the stock market's reaction. The, the reaction of the ASX, which dropped about zero point seven percent in the five minutes after the announcement. Uh, you know, the bond market's been trying to tell the uh, stock market for some time that. Um, the RBA is behind the curve and needed to go harder on rates. But I guess it's that thing of you, you sort of, until reality arrives, it's it's sometimes hard to get your head around. Yeah, well, I guess that's right. I mean, the the the, um, the markets have been predicting very big rate increases, still are, um, but uh, the share market didn't believe it. Yeah. And... Uh, um, reacted as as you say. I mean, it was largely retailers, um, banks. I don't know why the banks went down. Actually, do you know? No, and I think that's that. That to me underscores the sort of maybe a bit of confusion in the market. I mean, banks, uh, everything being equal, should go up when there's uh, interest rate rises because they make money from higher rates. Uh, so that was a good to me a good sort of signal of a bit of confusion and, and perhaps a bit of concern that. Uh, the RBA is going to have to do a lot more work than first thought to get, uh, get get inflation back under control. I mean, you know, I thought it was interesting that 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 the RBA's sort of admitted yesterday that it's it's monthly change. You know, the the, the monthly forecast on inflation. Things are just moving so quickly, particularly in energy prices, that it's struggling to keep up with its inflation forecast, which is fair enough. You know, the world's a dynamic place and there's some stuff going on in energy that's uh, quite unusual. But um, I wonder if the market sort of panicked at that idea that, well, if the RBA doesn't quite know where the goalposts are, how are we supposed to know? No, indeed. We probably should explain why banks make money when interest rates are going up. The answer is because um, deposit rates go up more slowly than lending rates. Yes, that's right. And in some ways, Alan, they rely on the laziness of depositors um, uh, to, to who, who perhaps are, are slow to demand higher rates or, or switch into products with higher rates. Um and that means that the, the banks can earn a nice, uh, a bit more profit off the difference between the the lower deposit rates that they're offering to customers and the higher deposit rates that they can earn on their their money. That's right. So, um, but the thing is that the the uh, inflation is not due to anything that is susceptible to higher interest rates. I mean, this inflation is not due to um, uh, rising demand or rising wages. It's due to an energy shock caused by the Ukraine war, largely, yeah. and also there's some domestic issues as well, none of which will be changed by interest rates going up. So yeah. 
No. So, I mean, th this is really, you know, this is the old uh, problem with the uh, interest rates. It's such a blunt tool. And, and really all the RBA can do is smack the economy around a bit, ho hope to force unemployment up a little bit, not too much, and, and, and then hope the economy slows um, in a way that takes the pressure off inflation over time. But yes, you're right. It, really, some of these um, external forces, energy prices and uh, supply chain disruptions, they're, they're going to have to fix themselves at the same time, and the RBA's got little control over that. And James, there's an old saying that the best cure for high prices is higher prices. Yes, and yes. Um, and it will fix itself eventually. Uh, and in the meantime, the RBA will have us uh, cause us to have a recession just to, just along the way. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I don't think it's madness. I don't think yeah. it's madness. Well, it's interesting, Alan. Uh, the, the World Bank had a new set of forecasts out, and and you know, big central bank, uh, big bank <laughs> forecasts are sometimes uh, you know n n not as. Uh, credible as we uh, as we might like to hope, but oh, you mean the, the, that you mean that they're never right? <laughs> yes, that's 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 what I was trying to say nicely. Um, but it's interesting that the, the World Bank now sees several years of stagflation, which is high inflation and low economic growth, almost guaranteed. Um, so, to your point, it's going to take a it, it could take a long time for us to get out of this sort of rut of higher prices, lower growth, you know, how do we navigate this? This could be a, you know, a, a, a battle that takes most of the rest of the decade. So I reckon it's worth reflecting on what happened in 1973 and in the 70s generally because what's happened uh, with Ukraine is very similar to um, uh, what happened after the Yom Kippur War of, uh, uh, of 1973 when um, the Arab states imposed an oil embargo on Israel's allies. I mean, it, it, it came about after the Yom Kippur War in which Syria and um, Egypt attacked Israel. And then, of course, America rushed to Israel's uh, aid. And then the uh, Arab states, OPEC, imposed an oil embargo, which quadrupled the price of oil from $3 a barrel to $12 a barrel. Um, and that was in late 1973. Um, there was an immediate recession in 1974, which lasted until 1975, and the immediate response of central banks, uh, including the Federal Reserve, was to cut interest rates to deal with the recession caused by the um, energy shock. So, um, and, and actually, you know, we, we often conflate uh, or, or sort of remove the time difference between between the oil shock of 73 and what Paul Volcker did when he was appointed um, uh, chair of the Federal Reserve in, uh, in August 1979. And, I mean, there was a second oil shock in 79 caused by the Iran revolution, which took out Iran's production of oil. And so the oil price doubled again to uh, 40 bucks a barrel in uh, 1979. And then uh, Volcker uh, jacked up. American interest rates to 19% um, in 1981 to deal with the inflation and uh, that's when there was the the early early 80s recession so but that didn't that didn't happen until 8 years after the 
first oil shock. Mm. So I just kind of, you know, if it is, um, if this is analogous to the 73 oil shock, um, the likelihood is that the, uh, the rise in food and energy prices alone are going to cause a recession. Yeah, yeah. Now, right? I mean, and so I think what's likely to happen is that um, in a couple of months' time, maybe three, four months' time, I don't know, the central banks, including the Reserve Bank of Australia and the Federal Reserve, are going to, going to have to do a sharp U-turn and start cutting interest rates again because of the recession caused by the energy shock um, out of Ukraine. Um, yes. So I think history will say, say that this episode of rising interest rates will, is a massive mistake. Yeah. To, to, to extend your analogy, though, you know, we, we have a recession in the next five months uh, they cut rates, and, and and then do we get a, another spike in inflation that will someone will need to do a Volcker uh, to fight against? Well, um, yeah, what happened in the seventies was the the second oil shock in nineteen seventy nine, which really got things going, or at least extended the um, the, the the inflation. Um, so no, I mean, unless there's another. Uh, something happens like the Iran revolution um, so to extend the energy crisis and make uh, energy prices go up again. I No, I don't think so. I mean, what will happen is that there's a recession caused by the big increase in food and energy prices and, um, you know, and then there's a big decline in uh, in in uh, demand as a result of that. Mm. So, look, I don't know. I mean, I just think the – I mean, obviously the central banks are, you know uh, – They've been caught with this inflation and uh, with interest rates in Australia at 0.1 percent. You know, in the US, um, similar levels. So they've got, you know, they feel like they've been out on a limb. You know, they've got to they've got to get their interest rates back to what they regard as normal. Um, yeah, yeah. But the trouble well, is, that with, with uh, as a result of their low interest rates for so long, everyone's borrowed too much money, and yes. now it's now it's really serious. Yeah, yeah. But it's it, it, it's going to be difficult because unlike in the seventies, where eventually more um, uh, supply of oil and uh, came on, that's not going to be so easy this time, is it? I uh, no. Well, uh, yeah. Well, I think Russia's. I mean, the, the main thing is uh, Russia has been expelled from the global trading system uh, for its behaviour in Ukraine, and fair enough. And it'll it won't be let in for decades. I mean, even if they knock off Putin, Russia's out. For yeah, a long time, yeah. and, and, um, and and beyond that, um, given the urgency of the energy transition, we're, we're not going to be going to drill lots and lots of holes in the ground. I mean, it's just not going to happen. So it's hard to see how energy prices uh, come down, you know, significantly in the next decade, which creates this underlying inflationary pressure. And I'm just not sure. Maybe the I'm just not sure how central banks handle it, and maybe the way they'll handle it is to say, okay, well, two to three percent. That was that was in the old world of fossil fuels. Maybe four percent's now more realistic. I, I don't I don't know, but exactly um, that's what they should do. I mean, the problem know, is though, if if you say four percent's okay, what do you do when it gets to five or six? Yeah, well, so this, I, you know, we're in a what, bind here, I reckon. 
Yeah, but if but just adjusting their target from say instead of saying two to three percent is our target, they say three to four percent is our target, which you know would make no difference to anything. Um, that would make a big difference to uh, interest rates and and everything. I mean, I think that would be uh, that's clearly the way to go. I mean, the, the two to three percent is is arbitrary anyway. I mean, Paul Paul Krugman, the uh, New York Times economist. Had a piece the other day saying that um, the target, the two percent target, they've got a two percent target in the US, not uh, two to three. Anyway, he he says that was just a compromise. At the time, there was an argument between a bunch of economists who wanted zero and another bunch of economists who wanted four percent, and they settled on two as the <laughs> um, as the compromise. But it's, it's sort of an arbitrary number. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's fascinating to watch. I mean, it's it, 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 poor old. Um Poor old Jim Chalmers, the new treasurer, has uh, has walked into a bit of a um, a minefield. You know, he's he's, he's got rising rates and uh, energy crisis that has been a long time in the making, and, and um, you know, certainly certainly can't be pinned on him personally. Uh, but he's going to deal with the fallout of it from it for the next little while. And what do you, what about Ali Angus Taylor? You know, the failed energy minister who's now been made shadow treasurer, he pops his head up yesterday and says, oh, well, the way to deal for the, the way to them to deal with inflation is to cut spending. Oh, yes. For heaven's sake. Yes. Well, I, I, I saw a little tidbit this morning, Alan, that um, Angus Taylor's uh, press conference yesterday after the RBA decision was attended by exactly zero journalists. So, um, uh, oh, is that right? I didn't see that. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. No one showed right. up. But, um, that- but but look, I mean, I think uh, for for a little while, you know, we, we want to hear from the. I think I think what the treasurer's got to say is probably uh, as he gets his head around all these issues is is probably the more important thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think I think there should be a new convention introduced in the media, uh, which is that we completely ignore the the opposition for six months after an election, <laughs> um, yes. because. They're irrelevant. I mean, I think we should just completely ignore them and uh, six months later say, okay, right, what do you got to say? I mean, um, yeah, well, maybe you can get that written into our constitution, Alan. That, that, that could be a good one. I think that's good. I mean, certainly we should ignore Angus Taylor probably forever. But um, anyway. Now, you've got a thing saying managed funds, are they good investments in themselves? What do you reckon? Well, look, I, I, I just thought um, it was interesting to see. You, you might have seen Magellan put out another um, difficult, well, you know, they've lost a bit more funds under management, another $3 billion. So uh, to put it in context, they've gone from managing $116 billion the end of last November and now they manage about $63 billion. So that's a big drop in a relatively short space in time, which has weighed heavily on their share price. It's down about 70% in the last year, um, and it, it fell again this week with that latest funds update. But there was some interesting research done by um, Bank of America, which basically said uh, listed fund managers aren't really a very good investment. Um, the, 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 their, their earnings have been going backwards, and this... What I found particularly interesting, one of the theories has been that, you know, there's a great economies of scale in funds management. It shouldn't take much more resources to manage $100 billion as it does to manage $10 billion. Um, but 
this research found that that's a bit of a myth and that cost and cost to income ratios at most of our big fund managers have actually risen as their funds have grown. So um, I, I found that quite interesting. But the I guess the bigger point was um, that the, the sort of structural uh, winds are blowing against these guys, um, the big one being passive investing. And, and the stat that stood out for me was that in Australia that there's about about 5% of equities are in exchange-traded products, so ETFs um, and other passive vehicles, where in America it's 40%. So if you think that gap's going to close over time, then that's, uh, that, that's not great news for listed fund managers who rely on beating the market and, you know, uh, uh, have proven over time that they can't guarantee they're going to do that. I didn't realise it was that big. That's that's huge. It is five percent, five percent here and forty percent there. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So, do we reckon that uh, that it's going to go to forty percent in Australia? Well, look, I mean that that I, I don't know, but uh, you would think that gap closes, even if it closes to twenty percent and forty percent. That's a lot less money for the uh, listed fund managers to potentially manage, and obviously the super funds are bringing them their um, money management increasingly in house as they get bigger. So there's a few sort of headwinds for these guys, you know, on, on top of the fact that they haven't been great uh, earnings, earners in the last little while. To say the least. Goodness mm. me, they're, they're stuffed. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I think that's a really good point, James. I think they're in, they're in deep trouble. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the one thing they have in their favour is they still pay a reasonable dividend yield um, and – but, but I, I, I guess a lot of these things sort of look cheap and, and that's always a bit of a danger, you know. Just because it looks cheap doesn't mean it can't get cheaper. We better move on to questions. Yeah. We've got a few. Uh, Jessica says, love your podcast. Am I right in thinking that the Reserve Bank could write off some or all of the, some or all of the $350 billion worth of government bonds it currently owns, thereby reducing the government's, the federal government's debt and the burden for future generations to have to pay it off? Um well, it can in theory, Jessica, except that the problem is that um, uh, they've got a balance sheet. So there's although that um, they've got all these bonds on the asset side of the balance sheet, they've got liabilities. Mm. And so um, I'm just looking at the balance sheet as we speak. Uh, and on the liability side, we've got $100 billion worth of notes on issue, which are actually a liability um, because uh, as they um, – a currency, currency or a note, is actually a uh, an IOU um, on the Reserve Bank. Um, the main thing is they've got exchange settlement balances, which is the the where the money goes when they when they inject money into the economy by uh, by buying bonds. The money goes into the banks and uh, sits on the Reserve Bank balance sheet as an as an ESB or exchange settlement balance. Four hundred billion dollars worth of those. So look, if they if they cancelled that three hundred and fifty billion in bonds, um, they'd be broke, essentially, because they'd cancel assets, uh, but they'd still have the liabilities. Um, so the government would have to inject that amount of capital into the um, uh, into the reserve bank to keep it afloat. Um, so am I am I right there, James? Yes, that's a great. Uh, I, I think the. <laughs> the important part of all that is that the, the RBA sort of doesn't 
exi- it exists in the financial system. It, it, it's not uh, separate from it, and um, its decisions do have real world consequences. So you, you can't just cancel something and you know pretend things are a sort of make believe entries in a spreadsheet. That they do, that there is real world consequences to what the ABA does, and that's their that's their purpose. Yes, and in fact, um, there is an argument to say that the Reserve Bank is already broke because the assets, the bonds that it owns, um, they might have cost them $350 million, billion, but they aren't worth that anymore because uh, <laughs> yes. bond yields have gone up, which means prices have gone down. And so actually they've, they've gone down by quite a lot. So I reckon you could make an argument that the RBA is technically insolvent now. But um, let's, not, uh, let's not mention the war Let's not tie ourselves up on that. Uh, Don Corleone, which is a, um, a, a famous name to listen to our podcast, uh, says, love the show, always entertaining. He's a long-suffering shareholder in AGL. Um, no, no, Origin Energy. Origin Energy, sorry. Um, yes, long-suffering shareholder in Origin Energy, wondering why the attention and scrutiny on AGL hasn't been reflected on Origin. Over the last three years, they've managed to hedge their APLNG revenues to oil at $67 a barrel in a year when it hit 130 bucks, depriving themselves of a bumper year for integrated gas, managed to go short in coal and expose themselves to huge fuel costs at their Araring power plant. And despite the above red flags, decided to do a $250 million share buyback when the share price had been at a two-year high. Now they're revising guidance and removing 2023's guidance, sending the share price down 14 bucks in a day. At what point does the board... Is the board held accountable for a failed strategy on so many fronts, just like AGL? Surely Stephen Maine must hold a share or two and would like to ask a couple of sharp questions at the next AGM. Well, I think you can bet on that. <laughs> Look, uh, uh, you, you know, let, to, just to break these down, managed to hedge their APLG revenues to oil at $67 a barrel in a year when it hit 130 Fair point, but we are about 13 months uh, well, sorry, it's about 18 months, sorry, since oil went negative $40. We shouldn't forget that. The oil market has fluctuated wildly. These hedges are locked in in a fair way in advance. Um, so I take Don's point, but, um, you know, it, it hasn't been hard to be tripped up by the oil market at the moment. Uh, managed to go short in coal and expose himself to huge, huge fuel costs at Araring. Again, I have a little bit of sympathy here. They have contracts in place that should cover their um, coal requirements at the Araring power station. The problem is that their their uh, supplier, Centennial Coal, hasn't been able to deliver on those contracts for a variety of reasons, including floods and capacity issues at their own coal mine. So. Did uh, Origin have contracts in place that should have covered it? Yes. Should it have been able to predict what was happening at its supplier? Perhaps, but um, it's certainly been exposed to high coal prices that have been forced up by the war in Ukraine. The share buyback is a good point. That does look uh, poorly timed. The the one thing I'd say about Origin is at least there's some puts and takes here. Um, I I take the APLNG hedging issue, um, but... That they are making a lot of money. I think it's going to be a $1.4 billion distribution from the APLNG business in um, 2022. 
And given where gas prices are going, you'd think that'd be a winner in, in 2023 as well. Um, they do have issues on the coal side of the business, but you know, the, the, this is the problem with coal fire generation. It is on its last legs, it's aging, and there's gonna be issues with coal supply and, and maintenance and reliability. I mean, th- this is the world we live in now. So um, yes, uh, uh, some sharp questions at the AGM are in order, but I think they're much better positioned than AGL at the moment. And anyway, this is what class actions are for. So <laughs> if, if Don reckons he's got enough of a case, he can go to a lawyer and persuade them to, to run a class action, and you know he won't, he won't, that, he won't get anywhere. But you know, but also Don Corleone could send some boys around to lean on him. Yes, indeed, indeed, they make them a hedging offer they can't refuse. Exactly. Aiden says, "I love the." I love after all this time, I still can't tell when Stephen Main is being sarcastic. No, neither can we, Aiden, but never mind. <laughs> Question is, look, looking to purchase my first home in the next two years, want to take advantage of the first home super saver scheme. Given this is a short-term investment, is it better for FHSSS users to switch their super allocation to a more conservative or balanced allocation to avoid the greater volatility in markets? Uh, we typically hear younger people can handle the increased growth allocations like myself. Is this idea voided when using the FHSSS? Uh, well, I don't reckon the FHSSS is a short-term uh, short-term uh, investment at all. This is if you're going to put your super into housing and into the house, that ought to be long-term. Am I am I wrong, James? No, I think I think that's right. I mean, I wouldn't be changing your super settings for one particular purchase. Um, no, uh, I, I, I think you 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 need to, and, and you're totally right, Alan. You need to see both housing, a house, and your super as long term investments. You're going to be paying the thing off for twenty five or thirty years, and you're going to be saving yeah. through your super account for forty or fifty years. So they're, they're quite they are aligned in that respect, I guess. But don't 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 use the idea of short term anything around uh, around either of those assets. I wouldn't have thought. Hmm. Okay, uh, your turn. Derek, he's a big show of the fan as always. Uh, Goldman Sachs last week issued a report saying lithium prices will go significantly down over this year and next year before they bounce again in 2024. Their thinking is that a fundamental mispricing has in turn generated outside supply response well ahead of the demand trend in focus. So in other words, the world's full of supply uh, at the moment. I'm wondering how Goldman Sachs came to this conclusion in particular at the moment, while all the other experts were predicting severe shortages of lithium for two years, also seeing this is the main hurdle for EV production. My suspicion is it could be just another manipulation attempt to knock down share prices of the current and near future batteries producers of battery minerals. That is a grave allegation. (laughs) Well, look, it is, but I actually did some work on this last week, Alan, and I, I... I, I had the temerity in, in a column to compare the crypto um, crowd on social media, particularly Twitter, to the lithium crowd because they both love a conspiracy theory. They both think that nobody understands their market um, and, and they're both to the moon type, uh, to the moon bullish. Um, and <laughs> unfortunately, Derek's provided a good example of this. I, I mean, I, I think... You've got to look at a prediction from someone like Goldman Sachs like you look at a prediction from anyone else. I mean, 
It's just one view in the market. It it doesn't need to be taken as gospel. There's lots of other voices that think they're wrong, that, yes, lithium supply is increasing and there's lots of new mines and new projects, but they're all, you know, history says most of them will be um, over time and over budget, and so the supply that Goldman Sachs thinks is coming through might not come through. I mean, a market is just – what really sort of gets me about this is that market is just an exchange of opinions, right? You know, some people think are bullish, some people are bearish. It's it's not, you know, Goldman Sachs isn't committing sort of a crime by disagreeing with you. And and even if you think they're wrong, just you should read these predictions and say, okay, that's a point of view. Have I considered it? Am I being unemotional about my investments? Is there a, a few points or, or, or grains of truth that I could pick up on? And then you move on. Um, don't, don't sort of lash them as, as, as they're out to manipulate markets. It's just a view. It, it's just a view. And the other, thing to, the other thing to bear in mind is these analysts, it's, it's hard for them to get noticed. So, yes, yes. You know, you can't get noticed if you say the same thing as everyone else. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Anyway. I, I, I just the, the reaction to this has been so over the top and so emotional that you, you just you know it, it shouldn't investing shouldn't be as emotional as it is in in areas like lithium and and crypto. It, it's just another point of view for you to consider. And if you don't agree with it, just move on. It's okay. There's no penalty. And in fact, you know you can buy a stock. Uh, Pilbara Minerals fell twenty percent. If you're still a believer in Pilbara Minerals, you can buy it for twenty percent less than you um, than you could yesterday. Thank Goldman Sachs for the opportunity and move on. Yeah, Fraser says um, I've got two questions. Jim, Jim Chalmers mentioned on the ABC that the budget is currently in a troublesome state compared to the Liberals' last economic update, while outlining examples such as underlying assumptions of GDP growth being almost doubled. Is this related to the trouble of projecting economic indicators during these times or is something fishy at play? Um, well, <laughs> it's related to the habit of incoming governments to say everything's terrible and it's much yes. worse than they expected yes. so that um, they always do it. But, but, but to the point in the RBA's statement on Tuesday, uh, they're struggling to see where inflation's going month to month, you know, in the space of 30 days. So, you know, Treasuries doesn't have a magic crystal ball, so forecasting's really difficult right at the moment. Jim, um, Fraser's second question is, with the NASDAQ in the process of correction, it would be great to get your perspective on the big players like Microsoft, Amazon and Apple. I'm an, uh, full disclosure, I'm a Microsoft employee but would love an outside perspective on the technology industry. Well, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think <laughs> these companies are fine. Yeah, the big I, ones. Mean, I think Amazon and Microsoft have these amazing cloud business businesses providing cloud web services to companies all over the world. Amazon's is called Amazon Web Services and Microsoft's is called Azure. And these things are just growth earnings machines. Um, the, the, the broader businesses look to me to be pretty good shape. The, the only question I've got, I think Microsoft's holistically looks to be in pretty good shape from, you know, from afar, although they did have a profit warning last week because of the strength of the US dollar and they obviously earn a lot of money overseas outside the US. The, the, the question I've got on Amazon is their retail business. Like we've always been told, Oh, once this thing gets to scale, that's when it should start making money. 
you know, if Amazon's retail business isn't at scale now, when's it ever going to be at scale? And it's still not making money. So I just wonder about that one. I wonder if there's a a reset coming in, you know, the price of delivery or the the speed of delivery or, you know, something around their cost structure. I I don't know. But um, it it always puzzles me a bit that, um, you know, still haven't cracked cracked profitability in a way that many people would have expected. And, and Alan, our final question is from Dylan. What, what are some of the best ways a young person can prepare financially for a possible recession? Great question. P.S. Thank you, Alan, for being one of the few people to speak up on consistently about housing affordability and its negative effects on inequality in this country. Good question. Yes. Well, um, I reckon two things you need to do is uh, get your debt down if you can and secondly, suck up to your boss. Make sure you don't get sacked. Yes. Because... Um, the, the, what happens in a recession is unemployment goes up and, you know, if you can keep your job, then you'll be fine. And well, if, you could, if you could eke out a pay rise by sucking, out to your, sucking up to your boss even um, better. as inflation rises, that would be even better. <laughs> yeah, well, you might not be able to do that, but anyway, particularly if unemployment's rising. But, look, uh, uh, unemployment's not going up at the moment. Un- you know, the, the labour market's tight. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you're fine. Um yeah, you don't want to go into a recession with a lot of debt or unemployed. I suppose that's the that's the thing. Yep. Um, there's nothing much, nothing, nothing, nothing much else you can do, really. No, is there? No, I think I think that's right. I mean, if you've got a job and and you've got low debt and you you know you've got a bit of fat you could cut out of your spending if required, you know that gives you maximum flexibility, and that's what you want at a time like that. Well, James, I hope you go well at the at this uh, Morgan Stanley Gab Fest. Thank you, <laughs> with Mr. McFarlane, uh, the Saint of Ian McFarlane, former Governor of the Reserve Bank. What a fantastic fellow he was, is still. Yes, sharp as ever. So it should be fun. Thanks for listening, everyone, to today's episode of the Money Cafe. Stephen Main will be back next week. Send in your questions for him or for me uh, to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. So until next week, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. See you soon, everyone. 